0: Welcome to Voices of Esalen, where we explore the transformative journeys and profound insights of individuals who have embarked on a path of healing and self-discovery. I'm your host, Sam Stern, and today, a remarkable story of resilience and renewal. Our guests for today's episode are Amber and Marcus Capone, founders of Vet Solutions, a pioneering organization dedicated to supporting veterans struggling with the invisible wounds of war. Amber and Marcus's journey began with the often difficult reality of life after Marcus's retirement from the U.S. Navy SEALs. Amber witnessed the devastating toll that Marcus's service had taken on him as he battled depression, anger, addiction, and an array of mental health challenges. But just when all hope seemed lost, a glimmer of possibility emerged. In their quest for healing, Marcus's fellow Navy SEAL friend introduced them to Ibogaine, a psychedelic drug renowned for its ability to unlock deep-seated traumas and offer profound insights. While he was initially skeptical, Marcus embarked on this intense psychedelic experience and what would become a life-altering journey, one where both Amber and Marcus would find a way forward toward renewed clarity and purpose. Join us as Amber and Marcus share their courageous and deeply personal account of how psychedelic-assisted therapy changed their life and paved a path to supporting veterans through their organization, Vet Solutions. So with no further ado, let's explore the resilience of the human spirit, the transformative potential of psychedelic assisted therapy, and the profound potential for healing and growth that lies within each of us. Marcus and Amber Capone, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen.
1: Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here with you. grateful for the opportunity.
0: Marcus, you're a retired Navy SEAL. You left the military in 2013. I was hoping that you could talk to me about what kind of shape you were in at that point in your life.
2: You know, I was, I was in a weird place when I left service in in 2013. So probably for a couple years before I was actually medically retired, I just, I started going through a, a, just a bunch of changes. Uh, I was prescribed my first uh, antidepressant in 2010 while still on active duty. I had a bout of pretty significant uh, migraine headaches. So I think kind of all this Stuff was happening like at one time. I started going and seeking out therapy at that time. And for us on active duty, it was psychologists. Since I left service, it's been more therapists. But, you know, while on active duty, um, I was seeing, you know, command psychologists or I'd go out in town that Navy uh, medicine would pay for. But, you know, I was really searching at that time. I want to say I was confused. I had no drive really as much as I used to. I didn't really have a a passion for what I was doing. I decided to take uh, some time off uh, in terms of operational duty. Amber and I decided to move out to the West Coast and I was to become a SEAL instructor. So, you know, for many in, in my community in that world, it's really kind of a time to really just try to take some time off, try to put your life back together. And so that's, you know, that's what we were talking about. That's what we were thinking. And that's, inevitably what we did and you know we thought life would get better at that time and it it actually got worse although i was working and waking up every day and, and doing what i was supposed to be doing um i was really at that time really unfulfilled um with work with home with just about everything and you know i started losing interest in you know a lot of the things i enjoyed doing surfing playing golf and some of these other things that i you know used to love so it was you know, and I, and I didn't, at the time I wasn't aware at all. So I just thought like, this is normal. I, I guess I should be, you know, angry and upset and crazy all at the same time. I, I, you know, I didn't have this awareness of, you know, looking back of, I know exactly what was going on, but at the time I really didn't.
0: And Amber, what was your experience of kind of home life at, at that time? How, how what was, what was life like for you?
1: Marcus and I had spent so many years apart during his time of service, whether it was for training or for war time deployments. And it was really challenging for us to come together as a family again. As much as I had romanticized it in my mind, it was nothing like I thought it would be, or I hoped it would be. And it seemed like things were getting worse and worse with each passing month, which turned into years. And then the transition out of the military, which we thought would be the answer, um, also proved to be incredibly difficult. And so we found ourselves in this perfect storm of not having a connection, not having a purpose or a community. We were civilians. We felt like no one understood us. Of course, Marcus felt like no one understood him, especially because the kids and I had been existing in this world, but he had not. And so he was doing everything that was currently available to him at the time in terms of SSRIs and talk therapy and novel therapies and evidence-based tools and all of the things, but really nothing was working. And so what I was feeling was hopelessness that, you know, for over a decade, I had dreamed of the day that I would no longer have to say goodbye to him to go to war and worry that he may not make it home. I had become more worried about losing him in this country than I ever did when he was deploying overseas. And so it really threw me, I was not prepared for that at all.
0: Mm, Yeah. And were you able to come to a diagnosis of PTSD or traumatic brain injury, or is that the kind of thing that you kind of have to infer?
2: No, I mean, PTSD was an an easy uh, diagnosis. I mean, that's literally, you know, if you're struggling at all and you just spent several combat tours overseas that's what everybody gets slapped with is ptsd but then what else is coming alongside ptsd well you're depressed um so now you're you have depression i was diagnosed with major depressive disorder you're anxious um i had social anxiety uh, i was you know i had trouble you know being in a room with a lot of people uh, when i when i actually left service I had more speaking opportunities than I can count and I did a few and then I couldn't do any more. And I literally gave so many away, Um, like real paid, like paid really well speaking opportunities. I I couldn't do them. Like I couldn't even think about it. I would get, I would like curl up in a ball on the floor with like full on anxiety attacks. Like that, I thought I needed to go to the emergency room just by thinking about it and getting filled up with Anxiety and emotion of having to put this together and then having to actually deliver it. And so these things were happening that were just completely just weird, you know, or just what, you know. And so we, we get diagnosed with PTSD and depression and the traumatic brain injury. Uh, I didn't get I don't think I get died. Well, no, I did get diagnosed after the NICO after my first brain center.
0: Could you talk just briefly about the work that you did in SEALs uh, as, a, as a breacher and maybe even touch upon the, the fact that you're a, a D1 college quarterback, just in relation to the possible TBI?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I served 13 years on active duty. And as you mentioned, I, I was a breacher, um, which meant, you know, I, I was technically an explosives uh, expert or you know, I, I dealt with a lot of explosives. I don't know if I was an expert, but you know, so I was around them a lot and, uh, I really enjoyed it, but you know, it comes with a price uh, before that, you know, I spent literally from age seven through 21, you know, I played tackle football and I remember, I mean, I remember at seven years old playing against 10 year olds and literally getting my skull completely crushed at that age. And, you know, when you hear guys like Peyton Manning, wouldn't even let his kids play football until they were in high school. Um, you know, I wish, <laughs> I wish more, more parents did that with their kids. But so, you know, from seven years old through, I guess it was 36, I'd either been involved in high impact sports or in the military, blast waves, subconcussive blows. So both impact and, and concussion. Mm.
0: Could could either of you talk a little bit about the epidemic of suicide that's facing a lot of veterans?
1: I would like to talk about that. And then Marcus, I'm sure will have some things as well. And just circling back on his experience for almost three decades of sustained head trauma, whether it was, you know, peewee football or working with explosives, the constant repetition, loss of consciousness, subconcussive blows, all of those accumulate over time. And so, yes, like there were definitely symptoms of PTSD, but that was his primary diagnosis. And I felt like The Marcus that I knew really loved his job, didn't necessarily feel hypervigilant or triggered by fireworks. I was seeing much more of a neurocognitive decline. And so
2: we would scoff at PTSD, but it is very prevalent, obviously, throughout the military. Um, It's just something that we didn't talk about.
1: Yeah, that and I never thought that it was Marcus's primary diagnosis. I was seeing something completely different. And so the standard protocol when someone has seen combat and they come home with some challenges and they see a service provider is like pharmaceutical, 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 pharmaceutical. And so he was on this pharmaceutical train, and then one thing would cause a side effect that would prompt another p- prescription to be written, and so it's just this like giant circle of of pharmaceuticals, and. I knew that there was something more. So I think that a large part of why I felt Marcus could, I could potentially lose Marcus to suicide was that he was doing everything he was told. He was a high performer his entire life. He was totally willing and wanted to get better, but nothing was working. And so when someone who's used to attaining victory, I guess, if you will, is not able to do that, they become very disheartened very quickly. And so he was losing hope. And when you put that on top of any sort of repressed trauma, the head trauma, the transitional trauma, the family dynamic, the breakdown of the marriage, the disconnect, the loss of a paycheck in a community, it is the perfect storm. And then, you know, you feel like a burden to your family. And so, you know when he would say things like i just feel like you and the kids would be better off without me i'm such a burden to you nothing could have been further from the truth but i know that he felt like that because he was trying so hard and nothing was working
0: so would you mind walking me through this path to discovering ibogaine for the first time
1: i'll start off by you know, telling you know, my side of it because I was working on this for about a year and I had approached Marcus with it, but he thought that was absolutely crazy. But in essence, dear friends of ours who we trusted, Marcus is uh, one of his former teammates, reached out to us because he had gone and done ibogaine and said it was life changing, life saving. Really thought that it could help Marcus. But when I approached Marcus with this, he was much more comfortable on the Western medicine train. And so he said, no, like that's nuts. It's doing drugs. Like I'm not going to Mexico. Absolutely not. Fast forward to five brain clinics, all these pharmaceuticals, many sessions of talk therapy, absolutely no progress. He was desperate. I was desperate. I didn't think that I could continue the marriage uh, in its current state. And I was actually going to leave him. And I was sitting with that and thinking that even though I was, you know, more or less like going to go on with the rest of my life and be happy. I didn't want my kids to, to be left with the carnage. Like they couldn't move on from that. And so I just thought I want to try everything that's available. I'm going to circle back with him, um, on this crazy treatment and, uh, see if he'd be willing to go for it this time. And he, he was, he said, yes.
0: I'd just li- like to hear about the experience. I mean, when I think about ibogaine, I don't think about it as necessarily like a good trip. Uh, Marcus, you've described it as like getting punched in the face, and it's quote like ten hours of getting hit by a Mack truck. Yeah. <laughs> what what went on during that session?
2: Well, my first ibogaine experience was, uh, as you mentioned, it was pretty it was pretty horrible. It was you know it's a very internal psychedelic. A lot of other classic psychedelics are very visual and. Kind of mind altering, and ibogaine is not like, not like that. It's it's all internal. So matter of fact, when you you go do an ibogaine journey, you know, aside from all the medical screening that, again, most of the classic psychedelics don't really do um, ibogaine, you have to because of the potential QT elongation the cardiac risk. You're you have you know blindfold on, usually music, it, some noise canceling or not. But when the experience starts. You're having this uh, almost movie-like experience that you're watching play out. And some people, they're different for everybody. Some are actually watching a movie (laughs) in a movie theater, watching their life. Others are flashing, you know, images that go by. But as soon as you pick those eye shades off, it stops. There's no, like, you know, you're in a room, you know, there's people around. Um, Now, granted, you're on a a very heavy psychedelic in your, you know, you're, you you know, you're, you're, you're not in a normal state. But everything kind of seems normal. And, you know, you can get up and go to the bathroom with help. Uh, your body gets ataxic where, you know, it has trouble moving. So you usually have like a nurse or a nurse and a doctor that are there kind of help you get up and, and use the restroom and then come back. Or if you have to puke or purge, you know, you kind of just lean over and do it in, in a bucket. But it's really the experiences when you go back under, you put your eye shades on. And it was just very difficult. I mean, for me, I, I did throw up for hours you do it, you, you stop for a while, you do it again. And I did visit a lot of just bad things that went on in my life. And so I kind of revisit some of those things, some of the things from childhood, some of the things that were in the military. As we know, the only way to overcome really anything is to face it head on, right? So if you're having trouble, if you're you're dealing with problems even if you're just dealing with problems with a friend or you know a spouse or your child the only way to deal with it is to to, to actually sit down and talk about it right to work it out if you bury it it's still there and it it could fester and that's what i began unfortunately will not let anything fester you will face you know quote unquote you'll face your, your demons and i faced a lot of demons during my you know, I guess six to eight hour peak. And then I don't know, six to eight hour reflection phase of the of the experience. It was tough. Yeah. I felt like I got punched in the gut and run over by a Mack truck all night long, but I was so tired from being run over and from throwing up. I think I slept for a full day afterwards. And when I finally woke up, it was just like the world had been just like, poosh. The weight had just been like taken off my shoulders. It was unbelievable. It was like, it was literally being like reborn, reset, whatever you want to call it. And I was just so ecstatic to scream from like, you know, the top of every rooftop to say, I think I found something that actually worked. And I wanted to just tell other people because, you know, Amber and I, have friends and family that were struggling the exact same way or or worse. And we wanted to tell them so we can get them this treatment. And that's exactly, you know, what we did. And it's exactly what I felt like as bad as I felt after that, I I still felt like the world just been lifted off my shoulders. And and I was good. I just felt like I'm good. I'm good. So pretty hard to, you know, it's pretty hard to wrap your head around because nothing is that good. But it was that good. And, you know, we'll tell you that, Um, you know, a year, two years went by and it's not like I didn't have uh, depression again or or other moments of, of like what I was dealing with before. But when I was dealing with them for a week, two weeks, a month on end of not texting my friends back, not wanting to get out of bed, not wanting to do anything, these would last like half a day or maybe a couple hours. And as I just worked at everything that I needed to do through meditation, through you know, healthy eating again, working out again, being more aware, having a higher level of just awareness, those periods of depression and anxiety, um, when before they lasted a really long time, they were really short-lived. And the shorter they lived, you know, as time went on, the shorter they would get. I think we're finding out that these potentially can be the future of mental health care and doing it a lot quicker, stopping the bleeding right away and then fixing ourselves afterwards. So, and that's what I experienced.
0: And Amber, can you talk a little bit about how the relationship between the two of you evolved uh after Marcus had done that initial Ibogaine journey? Yeah, I'd just love to hear about that.
1: Definitely. So, we'd been together since I was 17 years old, like literally my entire life at that point or well, half of my life at that point. And so, um I always held on to the hope that I would somehow be reunited with the guy that I met because the guy that he had become after so many war deployments was completely different. And that's exactly what I got back was when I saw him after his Ibogaine experience it was so heartwarming because I felt like I was meeting him again for the first time. His demeanor was so different and it was exactly the way that I remembered it. He was calm. He was peaceful. His energy was had completely shifted. And so what had disconnected over the years in our relationship certainly wasn't put back together overnight. There was this gigantic sense of relief that there was hope again. And you know, I had to go through my own, I would say, healing journey, which had begun prior to Marcus's experience. But when someone that you love, like you're always mourning that person because you feel like you've lost them, and then you're reunited with them, but there's all this like there's this gaping chasm of pain in between these two things. I had to learn how to let my guard down to be loved again and to allow myself to love again, and so. In our relationship now versus a year ago versus five years ago, it's just constantly improving. And I hope that that serves as hope for anyone who thinks something is too far gone because it definitely can be saved.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit about how the kind of evolution between having these initial Ibogaine journeys and beginning vets solutions where you you were able to, or you felt called to share this type of therapy with other veterans?
1: Well, that is the first thing that Marcus said to me when he came out of his experience. He had asked, like, how many other veterans had been through this protocol. And there was, like, practically none, like, you know, less than five or something. And he was like, You've got to be kidding me. He said that this is exactly what his teammates needed and his friends. And so what started as his friends became their friends and their friends' friends. And then our entire Naval Special Warfare community. Fast forward to today, we serve all branches of special operations and we advocate for all veterans in the United States. But it definitely started with his goal of giving back and helping his friends, which is very much the thread that runs in our community, never leaving anyone behind, doing whatever it takes, an unconventional way of healing for a very unconventional group of soldiers that has now rippled out really around the world. I mean, veterans from other countries contact us regularly. So, you know, this grassroots movement that was birthed out of our own pain and out of his desire to pay it forward is reverberating around the globe. So the grassroots lasted for 18 months at about the one year mark after Marcus's treatment, one of my best friend's husbands took his life. And from that point forward, we just decided, all right, we can't be in the shadows anymore. There's no safe way to talk about this. We're going to have to take a bold stance. We're going to put it all on the table and just risk it. And, um, the risk has certainly paid off and, in saving other veteran lives. And so we took a six month period to retool. We submitted our 501c3 application in 2019 and became a nonprofit just about three years ago. And in three years between what VETS has done, Plus what we did with our grassroots portion, we have raised funding and provided funding for about 800 other special operators at this point to leave the United States for access to psychedelics. Now, simultaneously, like we realized that hundreds of thousands of veterans could potentially benefit from these therapies. We're not like just sold on Ibogaine. We advocate for six different modalities. We provide funding for research or resources for six different modalities with a goal of changing policy in the United States so that these therapies are accessible here. And we know also this goes beyond the veteran community. The entire world could could truly benefit from having access to therapies that are not band-aids, but actually get to the root cause of things and allow someone to not only get back to baseline, but to achieve new levels of high performance and happiness.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the six healing modalities. I know that you all are associated in some ways with MAPS, and of course, they've pushed forward MDMA for PTSD, not just for veterans, and I'm sure that is a slightly different experience than the Ibogaine protocol, and I'm just kind of curious about what other ways have psychedelic therapists been able to assist veterans in dealing with PTSD or other issues?
1: Well, believe it or not, even with the MAPS trials, not a ton of veterans have been included in those studies. And it's primarily because it's a high risk population. So, you know, they're looking for one diagnosis for the one potential treatment. Many veterans don't have a simple, you know, like one track diagnosis of PTSD. There are several comorbidities that oftentimes exist. So veterans have largely been excluded from the studies that are happening in the United States. Because of that or any history of suicidality, you know, suicidal ideation or uh, suicide attempts are an automatic disqualification for most studies. Far more research needs to happen in the U.S., especially in the veteran community, because we know how many veterans take their lives every single day. To become numb to that number as a nation is such an atrocity. Because if you think about it, like we know that roughly 20 veterans die by suicide every day. Those are the VA statistics. Reports have estimated that it could be more than double that, like up to 44 a day, which is unbelievable.
2: I mean, that's a, that's a lot of people taking their own lives every day. And we just got to figure out a way to do it. I mean, we just got off the phone with a very prominent payer system in the U.S., chief medical officer that just said, hey, we're, what we're doing right now is not working. You know, to hear it from him, but literally, like the person who's running mental health for like a large payer saying what we have right now is not working. You know, and what are we supposed to do about that? We have to be innovative and find new ways to reach individuals that are really seeking help. And so that's all we're doing here. We definitely need to follow the data. I think we have enough anecdotal evidence, like thousands upon thousands uh, whose lives have been changed, you know, and now the data is following, which I think is great. And so we could match those two up, the stories and the actual numbers. And, you know, I think we have something that is really going to shape the future of how mental health care is approached and treated.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was looking at some of the the data from some of the people who've received your foundational healing grants, the people who have gone through the VETS protocols. Are you satisfied with your experience? 98.9. Yes. Do you feel less depression? 93.2. Yes. Are you currently having thoughts of suicide? 94.4. No. Are you currently taking an antidepressant medication? 95.5%. No. It's just amazing.
2: I mean, Sam, those were real people that, you know, real stories who had real things that were going on in their lives, uh, you know, obviously prior to these treatments. And all, all this did was just help them get out of a dark place. And, and, you know, Amber and I will preach forever, like, don't just rely on the drug to get you to, you know, we don't want to throw more pharmaceuticals at people. That's definitely not what we're trying to do, but use it as a tool for what it should be used for. And then afterwards, all the work that you, you put in is, is what you're going to get out. And so, you know, the the drug is really good for what it's intended to be used for. And then it's up to us after to put in all the hard work to continue, uh, continue on.
0: What, What are the vets protocols like? How many times would somebody take psychedelic medicine? Yeah, just curious to hear about some of the details of that.
1: The way that we're structured is not to diagnose, prescribe, or treat. So we only provide the funding subsidy and the supplemental support before and after someone's psychedelic journey. We work with vetted retreats that are operating safely around the globe. And we have the six different therapies under our funding umbrella for either, you know, grants or research. So that would be Ibogaine or BOCA, 5MEO DMT, ketamine psilocybin, MDMA, and ayahuasca. We offer educational resources so that veterans can make their own decisions on what they're feeling called to with the lack of standardized protocols we certainly don't feel that we're in a position to be able to diagnose or suggest to someone what to do. However, most of our grant recipients do choose to pursue the same protocol that Marcus did, which is Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT. I mean, we've seen remarkable outcomes with Ibogaine and 5-MeO. We just completed a 30-person observational study in collaboration with Stanford uh, on the efficacy of Ibogaine. The data hasn't been released yet, but the preliminary data looks pretty incredible, and so I would say that of all of the protocols or compounds, ibogaine and five meo have a special place in the vet's mission for sure. Hmm.
0: Marcus, would you would you talk to me about five meo DMT? I'm not familiar with uh, the psychedelic and how one takes it and what what the effect is. It's a five to fifteen minute experience of what you know I experienced.
2: It's very intense. It's very synergistic with the use of Ibogaine uh, prior, just because Ibogaine can be a very deep, dark experience. Again, But it's what you need. And 5-MeO-DMT can be a very all-loving, all-encompassing experience. And so after, you know, you just went through hell and got hit by a Mack truck, this is kind of like brings you, you know, more into the light. And it's uh, very rewarding, Um, you know, If there's a few books on on, uh, 5-MeO-DMT, people call it the God molecule. Uh, Many individuals who either at one time in their life uh, had strong faith, uh, whatever faith that may be, or have gone away from faith or been atheists, come out of 5-MeO believing that they are connected to nature, there's a higher power, whatever you want to call it, God, divine, enlightenment, many individuals, many individuals who experience 5 meo experience that. So, you know, I think, and what, you know, and what Amber loves, and what I think is, is, is great is that these individuals come into treatment, lost in a way, no spiritual connection to anything, and they leave regaining their faith or with the spiritual connection, and whatever that may be, and whatever they, you know, they believe in and come from. So, you know, how can this, that be a bad thing? And, and so that's why I think this is just, it's incredible of, not only is a person healing from PTSD, potentially traumatic brain injury, anxiety, depression, but now they're coming out with a connection just to life again. And it's just incredible.
0: Has there been a desire on the part of the spouses of the veterans to take part in the, uh, the psychedelic journeying?
1: We've got to be able to write spouse grants for those that feel called to the medicine and would like to approach this healing journey alongside their partner, either doing medicine together or separately, but generally speaking now the same language and going through the same integration period. And so we provide spouse grants every single quarter. We've got a spouse retreat happening next week, actually, where I think Eight spouses of veterans in our program will be going to do their own medicine journey, and it's necessary because. Secondary PTSD and the trauma that you incur as a spouse in the military community is a real thing, and it shouldn't be discounted. I think a lot of spouses feel like oh it's always about the veteran it's always there's so much hype around the veteran and the veteran struggle, and everyone expects there to be a veteran struggle, but oftentimes the spouses and children get completely overlooked, and it is a very important aspect of holistic healing
0: mm-hmm. yeah, that is so great that is so cool to to hear about. You know, one thing I noticed when I was preparing for this podcast was how bipartisan, in a certain sense, your mission and your organization is. Often when I'm I'm interviewing folks who have taken part in this psychedelic renaissance, including the psychedelic psychotherapy renaissance, these are people who lean towards the left politically, you know, and psychedelics in general as they are ex- experienced by the American public in the 60s were certainly associated with anti-establishment modes of culture, and more Im- implicitly associated with anti-war movement. You've managed to create this way forward that can be championed on both Good Trip podcast and Fox News. So talk to me about this psychedelic bipartisanship that I believe I'm seeing.
1: It's One of the most favorite things of mine about the VETS mission, uh, it's a beautiful purple space where we can appeal to those on the left who've been advocating for psychedelic therapies for decades and those on the right who are patriots perhaps and would do absolutely anything to help our veterans. This is an area where everyone tends to be able to agree. I think that it's pretty remarkable at this this point in our nation's history to be able to find anything to agree upon. And so the fact that veterans are leading the way in And it's something that is truly healing and can heal so many divides is pretty remarkable.
0: I'm curious to hear about how VETS ensures maximum potential for success for veterans after they've gone through the protocols. Like what does integration look like?
1: I'm so glad that you asked that because that is really what sets the VETS program apart. We're primarily a grant writing organization. A veteran comes to us, they need the subsidy, and we send them abroad to pursue psychedelics. However, we all know that the the bulk of the work happens after the experience and a good portion of the work happens prior to the experience. That's what we provide in addition to the grant. So we're providing a prep call, pre- coaching sessions, one-on-one coaching sessions. Um, we're Teaching grant recipients how to meditate, what breathwork looks like, going into their experience. And then on the other side of their experience, they get everything from additional one-on-one coaching sessions to peer support, group integration. We have offering six days a week at VETS. It's included um, for spouses as well. Learn how to meditate. Take a guided meditation class. We're having a breathwork workshop. We're having an intermittent fasting workshop. Like all the little tools that help after someone has had this experience. We're hoping to partner with Therapist Network as well so that when grant recipients come through our program and they're done with their integration sessions specific to their experience, they can move on to an ongoing therapeutic relationship if they need it. We have a community platform. It's like basically Facebook for just bets grant recipients. They're on there communicating and competing if you will on all the things that they're doing to heal and get better. We have workshops monthly, we have an ambassador program rolling out. Like there there are a lot of ways to get involved and that's a huge huge part of it. The prep, the integration and the ongoing community support. They want to feel like they belong again and that's that's what we provide.
2: And Sam as you know when you're hurting prior to to kind of coming out of your, you want to call it your shell or whatever you're you're going through, the depression, the PTSD, or the struggles, you wake up again and you, you want that community, right? You want that bond of your tribe or individuals or whatever that community is. It could be your military community. It could be your CrossFit community. It could be your church community. It can be your, 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 your chess club community, whatever it is. It's just like that something that, you know, we were supposed to be a part of, of each other. And, 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 uh, and build community. And so like this community platform and the way that we're going is just more people want to be uh, be a part of something that's bigger than themselves to help each other, to call each other friends. And that's what we're seeing is one of the biggest benefits to uh, everything that we're doing in terms of programming is that the community-based activities are, are, are what's pulling ahead of
1: everything else.
0: Talk to me about your foundational healing grants. Who can ap- apply for them? What's the criteria?
1: Oh, the criteria. We, first of all, if we get one point of pushback, it's that we don't provide grants for all veterans broadly. And I'm going to say briefly why that is. We're advocating for all veterans broadly with every single state and federal initiative that we're backing. What started in our community with our friends has grown to a point that it's, it's unsustainable from one organization's perspective we have about 10 applications a day and we can fund less than one of them. And those are quote unquote qualified applications of special operations veterans who've served in a combat role post 9-11. So opening it up more broadly than that just means we have to tell more people no, and you never know when that no might be someone's last. So We're advocating for all veterans. We're providing funding for other special operators who have been deployed forward more than any other generation or population of American soldier in the history of the United States.
0: How about a call to action for listeners who are excited about your incredible organization? How can they be involved in vets going forward and support your mission?
1: A lot of uh, ways to be involved are included on our website, everything from volunteering for an event to, of course, donations. And we are completely 100% donor dependent. We don't receive any funding from any of the governmental agencies that decided to put this group in harm's way. Um, So yeah, donations are the number one way to be able to give back to vets and every amount helps.
0: That's great. What advice would both of you give to veterans who are struggling with mental health issues and just may not know where to turn for help?
2: I think two things: one, I would say, um, keep going forward uh, because you know the worst thing you can do is stop and give up, and that's not what we want to see and um, we're launching a Silence the Whisper campaign, which is you know really centered around the voice inside our head that if you 've been there um, and individuals listening know what I'm talking about. It's the voice that is is telling them to stop, is telling us that we're no good. It's telling us that we don't need to be here anymore, that our families would get on better without us, uh, that we have no purpose. And so, you know, we just need to silence that voice. And so whatever, whatever it takes to silence that voice to keep going is, is important. There's hope there, there's programs, there are treatments available, um, you know, you're not alone. Uh, we're all in this together we're all experiencing the exact same thing that that person listening to this right now who's really struggling and thinks that i'm the only one that's dealing with the issue of my child or my spouse or my job or whatever else you're dealing with i promise you there are literally millions of people dealing with the exact same thing and and they're dealing with it and they're getting help and so services like ours again as these medicines are brought to the US. And as we we are able to have access right here, we are going to be able to help thousands and millions of other folks get the treatment they need. And so it's coming. We say, hang on and just keep doing the things that, that uh, you enjoy doing and make you happy.
1: My initial inclination was also to say something along those same lines. I had pretty much all but given up hope. And I'm not a quitter. It's something that I've just been a part of me my entire life don't quit don't quit don't quit and I was ready to quit so if that gives any indication as to how challenging things had become and how hopeful um, things are now and how much difference one life could make you know if Marcus had if that voice had won and he had convinced himself that we would be better off without him. Not only would his family not be better off without him, the world wouldn't be better off without him because his one story and his bravery and courage and standing, stepping up and standing in this gap has encouraged other people to come forward as well. So one life can impact countless lives and there is always hope.
2: And Sam, so I, I want to leave on, on this. Um, I don't ever want to forget, Amber and I don't ever want to forget the individuals before us that have been doing this for a long time, paving the way. Um, you know, Amber and I stepped into this six years ago through my own struggles. But a couple of days ago in the New York Times Magazine, uh, there was an article on Dr. Roland Griffiths from Johns Hopkins. And he, you know, was a, he's the a director of the Psychedelic and Conscious Research Center. Well, you know, I think most people know, or if they don't, you know, he's he's in stage four metastatic uh, colon cancer right now, and he's not giving himself a whole lot to live. And I thought at the end of the the last paragraph, I thought was just really, you know, everybody should hear it. This is what the New York the New York Times says. Hey, so you have a sense near the end of your life of waking up to life's real meaning. What's the most important thing for everyone else who's still asleep now? And uh, Dr. Griffith's uh, response is, I want everyone to appreciate the joy and wonder of every single moment of their lives. We should be astonished that we are here when we look around at the exquisite wonder and beauty of everything. I think everyone has a sense of that already. It's leaning into that more fully. There's a reason every day to celebrate that we're alive, that we have another day to explore whatever this gift is of being conscious, of being aware and of being aware that we're aware. That's the deep mystery that I keep talking about, and that's to be celebrated. And I just thought that was just awesome from a person who's given so much to the research that, you know, we're, he's just seeing the fruits of his work now. And, and um, you know, and I don't want to say it, but according to him, you know, he's not going to be with us much longer. So,
0: yeah. Amber and Marcus Capone, the two of you are just incredible. You're an incredible team. You have an amazing marriage. I'm really love the way that you two work together and play off of one another and how much of the work that you do is outward facing is meant to benefit others. So you're really inspired me today. Thank you so much for your time and everybody, please go check out vet solutions. That's dot org, and go and remember, we're never out of the fight. So please support this amazing organization. Thanks so much for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org.